Welcome back, friends, to Music Therapy and Beyond, a podcast focused on education, wellness, and advocacy for the music therapy profession. I'm Kristen, a board-certified music therapist, and I'll be your host again today for this education or learning moment. Welcome to March, friends. I don't know about you, but the year seems to be absolutely flying by. And we have a lot of exciting things going on around here at the podcast and with our practice. As a team, we've been focusing so much of our energy and time this first quarter on improving our systems and strategies, like I think many of you have as well. We're also growing and we'll be sharing so much exciting news about that over the next few months. But for today, we're going to leave it there and we're going to get into this third learning segment. We're going to dig into attachment, attachment theory and everything that goes along with it. We've spent multiple episodes talking about trauma and adverse childhood experiences, but we've not talked up till now about attachment, and we need to. I was first introduced to attachment, attachment theory, and the importance of it in my continuing education trainings with music therapy assisted childbirth and my prenatal and postpartum education. And then it also came up in our neurosequential model of therapeutics training this last year. It is foundational to know about attachment when really working with anybody because there is support for how secure attachment in infancy and childhood or lack thereof or an unhealthy attachment affects brain development and the trajectory of development and success as an adult. So it's important to know about, it's important to talk about, and that's why we're going to introduce it today. Um, The goals for today's segment are, one, to introduce and define attachment, to two, learn the historical foundations of the attachment theory, three, identify and define the different attachment patterns, both secure and insecure patterns, four, the importance of attachment and talking about why it's important, and then lastly, give you a brief overview of a few strategies um, to support secure attachment in children and both our work as therapists in the classroom and at home. So before we get into that, let's take a brief music break to center ourselves and then we'll jump into the episode. Let's get to the episode. So attachment, what is it and how did it develop? Attachment is defined a little differently depending on the source you're looking at, but the very first attachment theorist, the British psychologist John Bowlby, described attachment as, in quotes, a lasting psychological connectedness between the human beings, end quote. 
where psychology today uses attachment and bonding similarly as the emotional bond that forms between infant and caregiver, and it is the means by which the helpless infant gets primary needs met. They continue to describe the attachment then becomes an engine of subsequent social, emotional, and cognitive development. The neurosequential model of therapeutics introduced and developed by Dr. Bruce Perry describes attachment as an enduring form of a bond with a special person. They continue to describe this healthy attachment relationship to hold a sense of security and safety. So overall, attachment is a bond or a connection we develop in early childhood with our primary caregiver. That could be a mother, it could be a father, it could be another adult. That is the basis or foundation for our later development. So the idea of attachment first entered research in Balby's 1944 article where he was examining precursors of delinquency and found initial empirical evidence that precursors to emotional disorders and delinquency could be found in early attachment-related experiences, including separation from inconsistent responses and harsh treatment from the primary caregiver. Bowlby continued for decades to look and define the theory of attachment. Bowlby proposed that children are pre-programmed from birth to develop attachments and maintain proximity to their primary attachment figure, who was typically their mother, but could be any person assuming the role of the mother figure for that child. And that comes from Balby's 1969 article, which is linked in our show notes. Balby later formed a working relationship with Mary Ainsworth, which, who was his graduate student at one time, and they further defined the process of attachment. This is actually a really interesting relationship because at the time that they started um, looking more in depth at this, Mary Ainsworth was in Uganda. She was studying the child's tie to its mother in real life as a secure base relationship. She, I, I believe I remember reading that she actually didn't set out to, to prove that his theories were, Balby's theories were correct, but what she wanted to look at was what did it look like in real life? Were these theories, did they, did they kind of show through um, actually within the child and the mother and the tie to the mother? So it's very interesting because she was there doing her own research observations in Uganda, but was not sending regular updates to Balby, even though they were in communication. Um, but in 1958, he sent her his paper on the child's tie to its mother, which prompted her to provide an overall picture of her observations as well. This then led to meetings and further collaboration and presentations and things like this as they then developed the attachment theory that we know today. So Mary Ainsworth was an American-Canadian developmental psychologist who designed the strange situation procedure in the 1970s, which then later became a gold standard for identifying and classifying individual differences in infant attachment security or insecurity, and many of her studies are cornerstones of modern-day attachment theory. In the strange situation procedure, in quotes, a child is observed playing for 21 minutes while caregivers and strangers enter and leave the room, recreating the flow of like a familiar and unfamiliar presence in a child's and in, in most children's lives. In this procedure, the parent and child are alone in the experimental room. Then a stranger enters the room and converses with the parent. The parent then leaves, leaving the child alone with the stranger. 
The parent then returns after a few minutes to comfort the infant and then leaves again along with the stranger. This time the infant is alone. The stranger then enters the room before the parent, followed by the parent to greet and pick up the infant and the stranger leaves conspicuously. So in this experiment, four aspects of the child's behavior are observed to identify the pattern of attachment between the parent-infant dyad. Number one, they're looking for the amount of exploration the child engages in throughout the experiment, so playing with new toys, etc. The second is the child's reactions to the departure of its caregiver. Number three is the stranger anxiety. So when the baby is alone with the stranger, how does the baby respond? And lastly, the child's reunion behavior with its caregiver. So from this, observers then classify the dyad attachment as secure or insecure. And the patterns of insecure attachment were later defined in collaboration with Ainsworth, her gra other graduate students, Mary Main, and her husband, Eric Hesse as one ambivalent, two avoidance, or three disorganized. So we have four basic patterns of attachment that are standard for right now in the modern attachment theory. One is secure, which is the only functional healthy attachment. And then uh, number two is ambivalent, three avoidance, or, th um, or the fourth is disorganized. So there are three insecure attachment patterns, ambivalent, avoidance, and disorganized. So there are certainly confounding variables with this procedure and with this classification system, but it is foundational for the development of our modern attachment theory and was important for us to note it in this episode. So let's review our goals. We've addressed goal one and two to define attachment and we've looked at the historical foundations for the modern attachment theory. Now let's look at goal number three, identifying and defining these attachment patterns, both secure and insecure attachment patterns. Let's first start with secure attachment. This is the only healthy pattern of attachment and is observed in the strain situation procedure when a child freely explores when the caregiver is nearby engages with the stranger when caregiver is present, the infant becomes distressed or visibly upset when the caregiver leaves, and then comes close to the caregiver for reassurance and is happy when the caregiver returns, and then returns to exploring and playing the environment. In this, the child sees the primary caregiver as a secure base to return to in times of need. In secure attachment, the child also learns strategies of how to cope with stressful and unfamiliar environments. Broadly speaking, this form of attachment is developed when a primary caregiver is available, responsive, and meets the child's needs quickly and consistently and predictably. Now, let's look at the three patterns of insecure attachment. The first one we're going to talk about is ambivalent. It's also known as anxious ambivalent or in some places anxious resistant. In this pattern of attachment, children show distress before separation from the caregiver and are observed being difficult to comfort when the caregiver returns, even showing signs of anger and helplessness. Although this one is less understood than the other insecure attachment patterns, it is generally agreed that this is observed in the response to caregivers who are likely unpredictable. 
In this instance, the response of the child to the caregiver upon their return may be a conditional strategy for maintaining the availability of the caregiver and exerting control over the situation. Children may both seek and resist the caregiver at the same time, wanting to be close to them but avoiding eye contact. The next is avoidance, also called anxious avoidance. In this pattern, the child shows little to no signs that their caregiver has left and will ignore or avoid their caregiver when they return. The child is also observed showing less exploration of their environment whether the caregiver is present or not. It is generally understood that this pattern is observed in a child caregiver dyad where the child's needs are frequently not met or there's a history of rejection. In this instance, the child begins to believe that communication of needs to the caregiver has no influence or effect on their behavior and getting their needs met. So the third pattern of attachment, disorganized or disoriented, was the last to be defined and was classified by Ainsworth's graduate student, Mary Main. It was not in the original classification. However, uh, Mary Ainsworth did accept it and make a note of acceptance of it later on. Um, and in this pattern, it was actually developed from observations of both Ainsworth and her colleagues of observing tense movements such as hunching the shoulders, putting the hands behind the neck, and tensely cocking the neck. They identified that these behaviors signified stress. This pattern was developed as a third insecure pattern for those children that were observed not showing a consistent pattern of behavior that fit into avoidance or ambivalent but was certainly not secure. So some may show clingy behaviors and kicking, ignoring and other tension movements as described above. It was just basically disorganized. It, it was unpredictable um, and it didn't fit into the other categories. Other researchers later have found a correlation between children exhibiting this pattern of attachment behavior and their mothers having suffered a major loss or trauma shortly before or after their birth, which caused the mother to show signs of severe depression. So losing a loved one, for instance, right before um, the child was born is an example. Um, others also have found and correlated this disorganized attachment from the mothers who lost a parent before completing high school and those mothers who have also experienced unresolved trauma in their life. So what do we do with this information? We've talked through the four basic patterns of attachment, secure, ambivalent, avoidant, and disorganized. Now, how does this affect behavior and development? As you can imagine, the presence or absence of secure attachment has an effect on the development of the brain. According to Dr. Bruce Perry, as noted in the Neurosequential Model of Therapeutics, in quotes, the neural systems which mediate social interaction, communication, empathy, and the capacity to bond with others are all shaped by the nature, quantity, and timing of early life relationships, end quote. With this, pattern activity helps shape and organize the part of the brain that allows us to form and maintain relationships. If you've been listening, you know we've talked about brain development and different areas of the brain in previous episodes, specifically those that are affected um, in ch childhood adverse um, experiences and trauma. But the brainstem, being the home of our primitive functions, 
of blood pressure, heart rate, temperature, etc. The next level, so think of this as like an upside down um, pyramid. So down at the bottom we have the brainstem and that's where all of our vital functions are. The next level up is um, the diencephalon where functions like sleep, appetite, and arousal live. The next level up is the limbic system and this is where we see emotional reactivity, sexual behavior, and attachment. This is the area where attachment is developed and learned in the limbic system. And then the final brain level is the higher, the highest order, which is the cortex, which is where we have abstract and concrete thought, or that's our consciousness. So let's go back to what that neurosequential model suggests. That pattern activity helps shape and organize the part of the brain that allows us to form and maintain relationships, which we now know is the limbic system. This happens from the nature quantity and timing of early experiences. In fact, experiences in early life activate gene expression and result in the formation of critical pathways and processes. In their study, McCain, Mustard, and Schenker in 2007 also described certain neural pathways that are dependent on others in a hierarchical matter. For instance, the construction of a language neural pathway follows both the sensory and coping neural pathways. With this, they emphasize in this early um, life study that the importance of enhancing early childhood development to set our children up for future success. Now, this aligns with what we spoke about in episode one on trauma-informed care, that the effects of trauma on the developing brain because of the pattern or consistent trauma, it negatively affects the development of the brain. This is the same, same is true here for when we're talking about attachment, consistent exposure to neglect, rejection, or even the lack of consistent love and responsiveness from the primary caregiver can change the brain. A child's brain develops based on the responses from their primary caregiver in early childhood. This is foundational to understand because there are a myriad of problems connecting with, relating to, empathizing with, and understanding others that can develop from not having a secure attachment in early childhood. So according to the neurosequential model of therapeutics, as I understand it, attachment is foundational to all other development. They have this beautiful pyramid diagram that identifies this hierarchy associated with development and connection with others, identifying attachment as being the foundation or the base. So think about that old food pyramid many of us grew up with, with rice, beans at the bottom, then veggies and fruits, then meat and dairy, and then that fats, oils, and sweets at the top. So keep this pyramid in your brain with attachment at the bottom where rice and pasta were. So think about this pyramid as we go up it, that you cannot have um, the next level above if you don't have the one below. So for instance, attachment is at the very bottom. So we can, it is foundational, is a necessary precursor for all other developments. So we have attachment at the bottom, right above it is self-regulation. Above that is affiliation, Above that is awareness, above that is tolerance, and then finally at the very tip top we have respect. So 
This peer may suggest that the importance and foundational aspects of secure attachment are not only a good idea, but absolutely necessary, and they are precursors, they're necessary precursor to all other development. So being that you cannot have self-regulation if you do not have secure attachment and so forth. This is really big. This is like, this is foundational. And I hope that it's coming through um, to, to be such a foundational aspect. I, I, this is kind of a major aha moment when I saw this pyramid and just um, saw, saw how this all links together. So we've talked about how foundational attachment is. Now let's talk about when secure attachment is not developed. And this can be due to a myriad of variables and events, including trauma of the mother or the primary caregiver and or the child, preoccupied and inattentive caregiver, inconsistent family structure, inconsistent responses from the primary caregiver, divorce, abuse, neglect. These are just to name a few events um, that are all considered child adverse um, experiences. But I want to note that that doesn't mean that they will lead to insecure attachment. It just means their correlation that they can. So you can have negative effects from these adverse childhood experiences can be observed later on in life and likely because they, because we just talked about how the brain development, it changed the brain. So it's going to change obviously our outlook in adulthood. Um, so things that we might see in adulthood because of insecure attachment are anxiety, poor social skills, dismissive attachment with others throughout the life, um, severe independence and a lack of being able to reach out for help or even serious psychopathologies. All consequences of insecure attachment are different depending on the pattern of attachment that is present resulting from their early experiences and the mental state of their primary caregiver. However, they all have the potential to have lasting effects on an individual and even on generations. Because when you talk about it's going to affect your, your adulthood, it's going to affect also how you parent. And so then we start talking about generational trauma and generational effects of the lack of attachment. And so it, this is just really, to me, this is just really mind-blowing and, and just has really brought a lot of my attention to it. So on the other hand, secure attachment supports what does it look like when we do have secure attachment. So th that's kind of what it looks like when we don't um, we have some negative effects in adulthood and in possibly in generations. But on the other hand, secure attachment supports healthy physical, emotional, intellectual, and social development. It encourages curiosity. It promotes coping skills and enhances learning. So today we spoke about attachment in early childhood. There is much more research being done about the patterns of attachment in adulthood that is also incredibly interesting, but we will need to look at that at a different podcast episode. But before we wrap up this episode, I do want to live, leave us on a positive note with just a few strategies to consider as we encourage either in our therapy sessions, in the classroom, um, or in our homes to support secure attachment. So keep in mind that roots of attachment are related to a primary caregiver. But secondary attachment and maturity of attachment capabilities extend out to interaction with non-caregivers. 
This can mean us as therapists, social workers, teachers may serve as a secondary attachment or and and or as a guide to supporting secure attachment environments where opportunities for healthy attachment can be fostered. So supporting an environment for families to learn and um, engage in healthy attachment behaviors together. Um, so it depends on where you are, where you work, and, and what's appropriate to your setting. But communicating and modeling safety is foundational characteristic of building attachment. So this happens by being consistent and predictable in our response to a child or an adult, whoever we're working with, being consistent and predictable, connecting and modeling, guiding strategies for social and emotional skills. So being consistent and predictable, connecting and relating with them, and modeling and guiding strategies for social and emotional skills. Talk about regulation and things like this. There are a host of interventions out there, many of which I think align with trauma-informed care strategies because one of the inherent characteristics of that form of care is to create safer environments in which to learn and heal, which aligns perfectly with, in my opinion, attachment, um, creating a secure environment. So you can see where these two topics um, could overlap. If you'd like more information on trauma-informed care, please go back and listen to episodes one and six to kind of give you um, a little bit more information and uh, resources to to dig even further into trauma-informed care. The neurosequential model suggests that the stages of interaction with individuals, specifically children who have experienced adverse childhood experiences, um, is, is basically within, they call it the three R's. First is regulate then relate, then reason. So the whole model suggests that, you know, to we have to work first with children to regulate because if they are in that lower part of their brain and their brain stem, so think about that upside down pi- uh, diagram or pyramid where brain stem is at the bottom, then the diencephalon, limbic, and then cortex is up at the top. When children are unregulated, they are in that brain stem and diencephalon. They are not able to reason. So we have to first regulate and then as they begin to regulate and they, um, they progress through into that sequential, they sequentially move from their lower brain areas through um, to the diencephalon and then up to the limbic system become alert rather than in fear and terror and stress up through those higher brain areas um, landing up at the being calm up at the cortex then we can reason with them but in between we have to first regulate then we can relate and connect with them this is right where we would be right around that limbic system and then we can reason with them, problem solve, setting limits, talking about choices, things like this. But very first, you have to regulate. So this um, situation, we have to utilize regulation strategies. So first to connect with the individual. So many of these include all those brain breaks we've talked about and and that you, I'm sure, hear hear about in your different in your different areas, but other somatosensory strategies, including movement, music, and other sensory activities targeting the five senses. Those are some of the most um, important and effective. So deep breathing and things like that are all strategies that you can use 
for regulating. So first it's, is that, then relate, and then you can reason. So that is um, the neurosequential model strategy of the three R's. Now, Dr. John Gottman, an expert in attachment theory, suggests that emotional coaching is an effective strategy. So these five steps can be practiced by parents, teachers, and other significant adults in a child's life and include one, tuning in. So noticing the emotions of both yourself and the child. So emphasizing the importance of the adult being calm. This actually also aligns with Dr. Bruce Perry's research on co-regulation where a calm teacher can help regulate an overwhelmed student and an overwhelmed teacher working with an overwhelmed student will escalate rather than regulate. Number two in this five-step process for emotional coaching is to connect. The adult verbally identifying and speaking with the child about the emotions they are experiencing and helping them to connect with their emotions to their behavior. Connecting emotions to their behavior. And then the third step is accept and listen, where an adult practices empathy by putting yourself in the child's shoes and remembering what it felt like to be in that situation. So I actually see um, this relating with that, um, the, the second R, so the relate, um, so these, the two and three actually aligning with relate for the neurosequential model we actually just talked about. Um, the fourth step in this emotional coaching is to reflect. So once the child is calm, the adult can then walk back through the situation and what happened and why it happened. And then lastly, the very fifth step is ending with problem solving, choices, setting limits. So this is an opportunity to guide or involve the child in problem solving. Um, and these final two steps, I think align well with the last R of the neural sequential model to reason. So I, I really think that there's um, some collaboration and connection between these two um, models or strategies, but these are just two strategies of how to address working with individuals and families to support an environment where opportunities for building healthy attachment can be fostered. Keep in mind that these are just two and there are quite a few others, but these are the two that I wanted to address today. So to recap, the main points are to one, help the child regulate by tuning into their emotions of both the caregiver and the child and utilizing strategies such as sensory breaks, brain breaks to help the child regulate. That's number one. Number two is to relate to the child by connecting and listening to the child and talking about having them connect with their emotions as well. And number three is to reason by reflecting and problem solving with the child when only the child is calm. So the important thing to notice here um, in each of these is that jumping to reasoning when a child is unregulated is not effective. An adult should first work with the child to regulate and begin to transition out of his or her primitive or survival, survival brain area, um, brainstem area, before effective connection and relationship can be built and then 
towards the end of that whole process, that sequential process, when they get up into their cortex, that's when we can reason and problem solve and really look at implementing strategies. Well, friends, I hope that this was helpful to kind of walk through attachment and kind of get you interested about digging in more because I'm going to be honest with you, I feel like even though I've been around this for years, I'm just just scratching the surface of attachment. It is so involved. And especially when you start digging into the brain development and the neural um, pathways and with associated with relationships and then extending that into the strategies that we can use in early development to support this with individuals and with families. It is so involved and encompasses so many different modalities and um I'm just, I'm so excited to dig in further. I've already got a whole list of resources that I'm going to, um, I'm investing in so that I can even learn more about it. But I hope that this was helpful just to get you interested in it and learn a little bit about, um, the foundations of attachment. So I know I'm really excited and probably will have more to share with you in future episodes. But for now, thank you so much for listening and for tuning in. Here at Music Therapy and Beyond, we launch a podcast every Monday, and next week, Maggie is going to lead our clinical segment on working with individuals with severe and profound developmental disabilities, specifically over teletherapy. So check that out next Monday. It launches on March 8th. If you liked this episode, please rate and review wherever you listen. Reviews mean so much, and we really do appreciate your feedback. Find all the show notes, links, and resources at www.musictherapyandbeyond.com. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Music Therapy and Beyond. And email us at, you guessed it, musictherapyandbeyond at gmail.com. Have a great week, everyone, and thank you for the work you do in all the places you do it. See you next week.